I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Hi, everyone. We have all heard the phrases such as, you just have to get stronger. Conditioning will kill your gains. Breathing is the only thing that matters, or you have to get neutral before you lift. So where do these extreme viewpoints come from, and how do they influence the physical therapy and fitness industry? In this episode, Tim and I are going to dive into the thesis, antithesis, and synthesis model of how we get hooked on a new industry opinion. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Whether you are building strength or building back stronger, you need to check out Anchor. Anchor provides the portable space-saving cable trainer that is powering athletes' training across the world of sports and performance. The company's newest product, the Anchor Pro, provides a professional-grade cable training experience at a fraction of the cost of a traditional cable machine. Visit A-N-C-O-R-E training.com and get an exclusive 10% off your Anchor Pro order for being a more trained, less pain listener. Enter the code MTLP at checkout and get your Anchor and train without limits today. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Tim. Happy Monday. Happy, beautiful 20 degrees Monday. I am very excited. Do you know why? Because this episode was your idea. <laughs> Maybe a little bit of that. Because today we are going to be talking about pendulum swings in the fitness and rehab industry. Uh, before we get to that, just a little bit of exposition as to what the hell this is all about. So one of the members at the gym where my clinic is located, Colorado Fitness and Strength, his name is Tom Howe. He's an awesome dude. He's a professor at Regis, where, uh, where I got my doctorate of physical therapy. And he's a, he's a member in the gym, but he teaches um, something like religious ethics and philosophy. So he comes during open gym and usually I'm working out and we kind of bullshit and we, we talk a lot of philosophy. But we were talking about, I, I was trying to remember something from philosophy 001 that I took in undergrad, which was like one of my favorite general knowledge classes that I took. And I was trying to explain it. And I was like, there's, there's something that describes how ideas move through cultures where it like it starts at one extreme and then it goes to the next extreme and then it finally settles in the middle. And he's like, yeah, it's called the Hegelian dialectic. And I'm like, say that again. So it's, <laughs> so that, that concept, which is called the Hegelian dialectic, um, was brought into the forefront of philosophy by a philosopher named George Hegel, George without the E because German things apparently. Um, but in, but colloquial, colloquially in philosophy, it's called the thesis antithesis synthesis model. So um, essentially what it attempts to describe is in order to solve a problem or impose order to chaos, society will um, sort of adopt one position on a topic. And then over time, the that position will kind of wear on people and a certain subset of the population will adopt the exact opposite position on a topic. And then over time, both groups will sort of realize that the extreme position on this topic is rather ridiculous and they will bring both ideas together 
and that will be the thesis of the idea. So we have, or I'm sorry, the synthesis of the idea. So the first extreme is the thesis. The second extreme is the antithesis. The third extreme is the synthesis. Some examples of what this actually looks like in, in modern culture would be I think everyone remembers the shoe bomber from like the early aughts, but like some guy was trying to light his shoes on fire and blow up a plane. And, and so again, like a rather extreme thing to do, um, or the rather extreme thing to do, I should say would be that before that point, TSA didn't really like care about shoes that wasn't on the TSA radar. So everybody was going through security, shoes weren't being checked. That happens. And then for the next 10 or 15 years, everybody's shoes got checked. So TSA lines became way, way longer because of this one kind of extreme thing that happened. So we went from kind of being overly lax with our security measures to arguably kind of overly strict and slowing down the travel process. And then five or six years ago, TSA pre-check came in where it's like, okay, if you're if you're on this list, if you have a background check, um, if we think you're a low-risk individual, you no longer have to take your shoes. So we, we take your shoes off rather. So we have a, a thesis, an antithesis, and a synthesis. Um, historical example would be like when government first started, they were all monarchies. If we're talking about like the you know 11th or 12th century, and then eventually there were like things like the French Revolution where things shifted in a more democratic direction, but almost like a, as, as a response to the monarchy that existed previously. And then from there, things swung in a really, really far direction to like a socialist or communist kind of structure. So we went from um, like extreme, one person has all the power to no person should ever have all the power. And then both things kind of coalesce. And if you look at a lot of modern European uh, countries, they, they certainly have socialist aspects to them, but then they have like democratic aspects as well. So things have a tendency to settle in the middle. So what me and Tom were talking about was how this kind of applies to the fitness and rehab industry to really like every industry where we have a thing and then the pendulum swings in the complete opposite direction. And then 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line, we finally have some kind of resolution and a more reasonable understanding of that topic. Michelle, how'd I do? That was a great explanation. Um, this is kind of, and I know both of us have pretty young moderate careers thus far, but it's almost like a journey through a career or, or beliefs over time, right? Um, and some people can just become more polarized than others when that pendulum swings, right? Um, or you can kind of be a moderate <laughs> kind of things would fall back in between. And that's, that's kind of what we're going to talk about. Some topics have become and kind of what you experience over a course of a career. Um, you want to talk about that David Gray line? Yeah. So this is our, our good mutual friend, David Gray, who, by the way, just came out with a podcast and is it is excellent. I highly recommend if you like this podcast, check out his stuff. Yeah, really um, good. yeah, yeah. he, I, I forget when he said this, I think this was on the just fly sports podcast like two or three years ago, but it's always stuck in my brain. And he said something to the effect of, I love sitting on the fence. I can see both sides from there in response to, I think, Joel accusing him of being a fence sitter because he, he was refusing to take like an extreme position on a topic. And I just think that that's, that's probably where a lot of what we're going to discuss ends up going where it's like, it's, it's, I, I don't think in any of my examples, the correct viewpoint is one of the extremes. It's something in the middle that takes into account the value of either of the extremes. And that probably is, is rather true in society. Like with the, 
I, maybe not 100% of the time, but like most of the time, some kind of a moderate position is the right position, not to make this political in any way, shape, yeah. or form. And and kudos to him, by the way. That was a great response. And he said it in his, like his Irish accent, which makes everything sound just kind of like folksy so and better. wise. Yeah, <laughs> or fun. I wish I had an accent. I think we could, I think we have filters for that. Eh, maybe just, maybe one day. No, we'll make you Australian for the back half of season two. Awesome, perfect. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're we're gonna go back and forth on our topics, right? Yeah. And, and I just want to say, so one thing that I wanted to highlight from that exposition and then another thing just as a preface to this list. So the, and I said this before, but the, the first extreme position does typically emerge as a response to a problem or just an attempt to reduce chaos or impose order to a system. I know that's really, really general, but it's like, when we talk about a lot of these things, like, well, where did that first idea come from? And usually that first idea comes from just an attempt to make sense of, well, training can be too complicated. Like, let's just simplify it and say this thing. And there's nothing uh, bad about that or wrong about that. It's just the typical starting point that then starts this pendulum swing with the eventual settle into the middle. I know my criteria for this list and yours could be different were that these topics have had had to have swung in one direction and the other. So they've, they've had to have like two swings. Um, and I think all of them have occurred during my lifetime, but I think a lot of these things are cyclical where they've swung back and forth constantly for like 40 or 50 years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think two of mine probably fall into that. I think the third one's going to be a little sketchy for me. So we'll have to go back and forth with that. Yeah. And I think there's, there's some ideas that are so new to our respective fields that they haven't had time to settle in the middle. And we're still living in one of the extremes, like maybe the second extreme, the antithesis. Um, and that still, I think, is a really worthwhile conversation because we can kind of map like where these, where these concepts are on that, like on that arc. Yeah, exactly. And I would like to think of myself as having some sort of history of the field of strength and conditioning, not so much physical therapy, to be honest with you. But, you know, I'm not a true historian, maybe of the field. So seeing where these responses have um, risen from a solution, um, you know, I may have a different point of view of, you know, what actually happened. Yeah, right on. So I'm going to be selfish and start first. Sure. <laughs> I think this was, you know, very, very early in my career. I mean, I went to grad school in Western Mass where um, Mike Boyle, uh, I think hopefully most of our listeners will know who that is. He owns Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. Um, body by Mass Boyle on Instagram. Bottom, yes, Body by Boyle. Yes. And he's a very well-known guy in the industry. Um, you learn his systems pretty quickly. He's pretty successful. He's had experience. I think he was with the Red Sox at one point. And so throughout grad school, you know, I learned his programs. I worked for a facility in the mornings who ran his programs. It was almost like a, uh, I think they charged a fee, like an affiliate of his and, um, Basically, what, what was swinging was, I believe, in response to maybe his history of collegiate athletics, working at BU, working with the Red Sox, I think he was seeing a lot of athletes either get injured from back squatting or 
he didn't connect it with performance gains, um, maybe people pushing it too much. So he kind of, I think, swung the pendulum to the other side of never bilateral squat, only single leg um, training. And he's kind of stuck in that realm a little bit, but I think other people, including myself, um, have kind of moved out of that belief system and kind of swung back to the other side and really see the the benefits of bilateral squatting. Um, but I don't know maybe if he's only solely against it in terms of like the load that's in, involved in that. That would be like, that would be termed the bilateral deficit, right? Like that's where that idea comes from. Yes. Yep. So your, I guess, so your entry into your number three on this list would be that, that original position of almost like a powerlifting bias and strength conditioning where like, okay, we're barbell back squatting and that is the lift. And then things swung to like, we're only going to single leg because people either get hurt or they don't get as strong. So we're going to do, I, like, I think his thing was rear foot elevated split squats, right? Like that was like mm -hmm. the boil lift. Yeah. I think so. The, I, think the, so. I think that's those, fair to say. Those are the two extremes that you're setting up. Yes. Okay. And I think the, you know, he grew up in like the field kind of arose from powerlifting. So I think the overall progression of the field is kind of ref reflected in that. Yeah. I like that. And then, so where, I guess, where would you say either you are or the field is, uh, circa early 2022 in, in regards to, um, back squatting is great. It's the only way or back squatting is the devil. We must, we must rear foot elevated split squat. I think that's more of a micro to macro, like zooming in, zooming out. Like I would probably be like N equals one. Right. So I am not polarized and believing that you should never bilateral squat. I've bilateral squat. Um, a lot of people, I do it myself. There's a lot of value in terms of things that we've talked about previously, like pressure management, force production. Um, I don't push it towards the realm of like, that's the only thing that matters. And I won't do that particular exercise just because I think it's the, you know, something that everyone should be doing. Um, I think now zooming out and talking about like his bubble, I think it's still very prevalent in his bubble. I actually don't think it's kind of swung out of that yet. Uh, but even taking it step further outwards in terms of the whole strength and conditioning field as a whole, I think it has swayed a little bit towards, okay, not believing bilateral lifts are the only thing. But I don't know, in, in the collegiate realm. I think it's, uh, I don't think, I don't think that's really been touched. Um, I, th I think the big three lifts are still very prevalent there. So I don't know if it's kind of come out of that boil world and really made a huge impact, uh, to everyone else around. Yeah, that sounds right. And I mean, I think I'm just trying to think about like what I advise clients to do or, or how I program. And I don't, I don't know if I've programmed a barbell back squat, like in the past year, but I wouldn't like if someone was an Olympic weightlifter or a competitive CrossFitter and they wanted to get more squat volume, I don't think I'd be opposed as long as it looked okay. And it felt all right. 
I've certainly programmed a bunch of rear foot elevated split squats and like unilateral type work. But I, like you said, it's like each has their limitations. A person's probably never going to get as strong as they, as they optimally could, if they don't include bilateral lifts, Mm -hmm. Um, but bilateral lifts probably bring about an increased risk of range of motion loss of injury of just kind of like bad things, or even, I mean, I, I would even say probably specifically a squat with a barbell in a back rack. Cause I think a safety bar squat is a different thing. I know like you and I are both big fans of high handle trap bar deadlifts. Like those are bilateral lifts that, are, that tend to be a little bit better tolerated, but it's like, I, I think for me, the resolution of these ideas, cause I remember when this happened, this was like high school, early college for me, where it was like everything that you would read in men's health or on T nation was like bilateral deficit. You're only going to get as strong as you possibly can. If you train both legs individually, I remember thinking like, Oh, that's like, that seems like a pretty good idea. And then I got into CrossFit and everything was bilateral. Um, mm -hmm. I forgot. Yeah. I entirely forgot where I was going with that train. of thought. Yeah. I don't think I've heard the term like bilateral deficit in like 10 years. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it was coined for this exact concept. And I, yeah. and I believe that the true tenet of bilateral deficit is that if you summate the weight that you can rear foot elevated split squat on the right and the left, that is a higher number than your squat. And so I mm -hmm. think the Boyle thing, and again, not, not to speak for anyone in the camp, especially not to speak for Mike Boyle, he's going to come to Denver and squeeze my head like a cantaloupe. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the limiting factor in a barbell back squat is probably going to be more so your ability to stabilize a heavy load. And can you generate like enough axial stiffness in your rib cage, your spine and your pelvis to support the barbell. And it's never going to maximally tax legs. Like there's, there's probably a little bit to that. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the risk versus benefit too, in terms of the types of clientele, maybe you, I think you have to consider the context with that a little bit, because if, if I owned a facility to reduce risk, would I just take that exercise away from everyone? Maybe. Yeah. Especially yeah. with you're dealing with like very low training ages. If people can get strong with, you know, single leg lifts or split squats, um, maybe you are reducing some of the, the risk involved in, in loading. Especially like, I think if you, as long as you have something that looks like a bilateral squat still in a program, like if you still have some kind of a box jump variation where that, where you're training power development in a symmetrical bilateral stance, you could probably get away with that. And then yes. just tr train more like grindy strength and more of a unilateral context. I mean, hell that's like more or less what I do with my own training. Now we should, we should move on to make sure this, this episode isn't two hours. <laughs> Anything else to wrap up that topic? I think, I think that was excellent. Now, I think my next one's pretty much going to connect to it, but you go. Okay, cool. So this is this is uh, kind of a point of running history nerddom for me. But my number three is that uh, when we run, we want perfectly formed arches with very supported shoes and orthotics to support that foot structure in order to minimize injury risk and maximize performance was position one. I would say that seems like it was prevalent in the eighties and nineties position two in the mid to late aughts was this barefoot running and minimalist running craze. So I think position one arose as an attempt to solve, uh, the problem of runners getting injured. And then, and then the second position, the minimalist craze, which I think was brought about by born to run at least like the most, 
the most recent iteration of the minimalist craze also was attempting to solve that same problem of weak feet and people disconnected with their feet get hurt more. So now everybody should transition to minimalist footwear, transition to barefoot running. And I think now, at least in my own practice, when I advise runners, things have certainly settled into the middle ground. Like, thankfully, I wasn't still in that everybody must do everything barefoot uh, mindset when I when I got when I became a licensed physical therapist in Colorado, like it had already settled into the middle where I think there is a big utility for orthotics and built up running shoes. There's a big utility for min- minimalist running. It never has to be one or the other. Each has different use cases. And there's a little bit of an end of one thing here. And then there's a little bit of a like right tool for the right goal. So like, I think that for people that are having trouble attaining certain positions of the feet, putting orthotics in their shoes during life, like when they're doing other things, when they're walking tends to be really, really helpful. But then having them train in something that's a little bit more minimalist to get them to sense what their feet are doing, to get them to feel inside edge, outside edge, toe side, heel side tends to be really, really helpful. In running, this might look like, okay, some of your slower, easy miles are in a built up running shoe with an orthotic. Um, But then when you run fast, I want you in a spike or I want you in a flat or after a slow day, I want you doing a half a mile of barefoot strides on the grass. So I think each has a particular use case without becoming, everything has to be orthotics. Uh, the foot always has to be a perfect shape, podiatric model versus we never want any foot structure. The foot should be strong enough on its own. Foot intrinsics are the only thing that matters. I think we can settle in the middle and still see the forest between the trees. So do you think with like the minimalist camp, the sensory based like benefits from that is the imposed order? say that again so if they were both trying to like solve a problem so like arches in in um, shoes or minimalist wear like how do you think both of those responses imposed order on the the foot oh i think they i think i think the podiatric model was like okay so this over pronation thing is the root cause of all injuries okay so we're going to post the arch up so we're going to like resist the amount of pronation And then I think the minimalist folks were like people doing weird things with their feet during running because they can't feel their feet because they can't feel the ground is the root cause of injuries. And there was, I remember there was like an off uh, quoted study, which I don't, I've never looked into like whether or not this is real, but they had, they had gymnastics that were like, like early teens, mid teens, like higher level gymnasts. And they had them land on a firm surface versus land on a soft surface when they dismounted. And there were more, there were more forces going through a person's system when they landed through the soft surface. Like there was more of an impulse that reached the ankles, the knees, the hips, and the spine because a person didn't have appropriate stiffness at the feet because the surface was compliant. So that was, that mantle was kind of raised by the minimalist running community to be like, all right, in order to Um, have less of a ground impulse coming up from the ground through a body to a person's knees or hips or back. Let's have them run with no cushioning. So they're going to change the way that they run. So I think both, both were attempting to solve this injury problem via different mechanisms. Okay. Yeah. That that was a good answer to my question. I like that. Um, That was good, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that was like, I think 
of all the ones that I'm going to list, that's the one where I'm confident. Like it happened over the longest period of time in my life. Like it, like I saw this happen when I was like a young high school athlete, the podiatric stuff. And then I saw it switch when I was in college, the minimalist stuff, much to my chagrin, because it, it was responsible for like a, just a rash of stress fractures that I had because I really bought in. And then I've kind of seen things, at least in my own world, like settle into the middle where you have people like really smart people like Joel Smith really like extolling the virtues of doing most uh, higher intensity training in minimalist footwear. But then you have people like Mike Camperini, like people from the Bill Hartman school of thought, extolling the virtues of like, Hey, but sometimes we want the foot to be supported in particular shape so that we give the body uh, improved movement options. And it's like, both things can totally coexist. We don't have to throw one out by embracing the other. Sitting on the fence, <laughs> Mr. David Gray. All right. You're number two, <laughs> Michelle. Uh, more is better swinging back to less is better. So I think this is, okay. <laughs> um, like coaches in particular and kind of early on in my strength conditioning experiences, the answer was always more. Well, if it's not working or <laughs> if it's not feeling right, Let's just do more reps, more sets, more loading. That was the whole goal uh, is to do more um, or as like a bad response to maybe not getting results. Um, and then I feel like the pendulum has really swung with this huge uproar in biomechanical schools of thought. Um, such as the Posture Restoration Institute and the Bill Hartman model, melding into the strength and conditioning world, where it's like, well, maybe we should, you know, do more lower level exercises or people taking exercises from uh, this knowledge base and really kind of bringing things down a lot and maybe losing sight of, you know, challenging people and developing fitness. Yeah, I, I, I like that quite a bit. So where, I guess in your own practice personally, like where, where do you see the resolution between these things? Like, I where, think I, like how have you solved that? I was the epitome of going through this pendulum swing. I think in grad school, when I was in a strength and conditioning program, more is always the better. The sole goal is increasing weight on everything that you do. And then of course, you know, I, all my experience going through like the PRI system, um, you know, I was, did what everyone did. You know, I had a division one ice hockey team and we were doing like 90, 90 breathing for 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> and then rolling over and doing like a side blank or something. And that was like lift, um, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> but then you get exposed to people like give obviously Pat Davison, a lot of credit, um, and hopefully my myself, I feel like I can put in that realm of being like, okay, what are the overarching principles that these schools of thought are trying to tell us what's important? Um, understanding context and they're really geared towards a physical therapy setting. Um, how can I be creative with exercises that are focused towards a fitness quality? And just put people in better positions, shapes, and um, kind of just being a little bit more clear with your outcomes and what movement is, um, but not losing sight of 
you know, challenging people that you work with and still progressing with, with load and all the other variables. Yeah. I think back to, I think we mentioned this in, in the episode that we did with Lance, but when I was Lance's client, I remember, I remember being afraid, like he got me when I was kind of over PRI'd and yeah. I, I remember being afraid like, Oh, like I'm not doing this lift in a perfect position. Won't that mess up my table test? Won't that get me further away from neutral? And he said, and I remember this to this day, he's like, look, man, not all adaptation is neural, meaning like not everything that you do in the weight room or in your training needs to be for the purpose of learning a different position or improving like a movement outcome, like a range of motion or a table test. Some shit that we, some shit we can just do because it makes muscles bigger, stronger. It improves mitochondrial density. It induces eccentric cardiac hypertrophy. Like these are real physiologic adaptations. And I think when you were describing like that second, that second camp, the, the, everything needs to be breathing. Everything needs to be unilateral, slow tempo. It's like, we really sell ourselves short because we're not creating a lot of physiologic change. Yes, exactly. Thank goodness you ran into him by the way. <laughs> um, and I, I think when I, we've talked about this prior, when I've had people come to me who quote unquote, you know, were over PRI where they're saying like, I want, you know, I'm a PEC, like I'm at left AIC. Like I want help with solely that without having like, they had fitness goals maybe. Um, but I think that they were really limiting themselves because, um, they had this understanding or thought process that they were limited in some ways and that had to be overcome first. Um, and so they wanted to do as little as possible. And, and we, we probably should move on to, to number twos, but I do think, I know I I, just to, just to close out your point, like, I think KPIs really, really come into play here. Like if you're in that powerlifting model, then your only KPI is like the weight on the bar. If you're in the um, like physical therapy model, then the only KPI is, is like hip range of motion or shoulder range of motion. So figuring out what's actually going to be objectively measurable and important and relevant to your people lets you like, I mean, even as a starting place, like track both, like you can track weight on the bar and ranges of motion and try to get both to go in the right direction. But isn't like the, one of the problems with that is like weight on the bar is so easy to, to track. You right. I mean, I think that's where like the more is better camp kind of came from is because that's just, it's just so easy to say like a very clear cut, you're improving kind of a thing. Yeah. But I think the beautiful thing with, uh, let's say if you, if you took like hip range of motion and barbell back squat, one rep max mm. as your KPIs, if someone's completely untrained, they probably have like pretty good hip range of motion, a terrible squat. If you get their squat up to like body weight, now they have like an okay squat and probably no deleterious effect on their hip range of motion. If they continue that squat journey up and now they squat 405, I think like then we start to see hip ranges of motion really drop off. So having multiple data points, you can say like, oh, okay, more is not better. Like there's there's an upper limit to, to where we get benefit. And that's the definition of sitting on the fence. Look at that. Always come <laughs> back to it. Okay, you go. <laughs> Um, mine's going to have, have to do with breathing as well or breathing in like low level activities. So I think, I think mine is, uh, like position one breathing is a thing that humans do, but we don't have to be concerned about it. It's not trainable. It doesn't really like breathing is breathing. It just, it just sort of is, we're not going to worry about it Two, 
breathing is the thing when it comes to performance, when it comes to rehab, everybody's breathing is messed up. We need to retrain it on everybody. And we need to integrate breathing with all of our weight room activities to improve weight room outcomes, be it power production, force production, hypertrophy. Like we need to integrate breathing with everything. Then I think the middle ground would be Breathing is super important. We can modify it in a lot of ways via mobility and rehab drills. We can certainly use it as a cue with weight room activities, but not everything needs to be, needs to have breathing featured prominently in its role. And I would say probably like I I do more in my physical therapy practice where I get people to cue in on their breathing. Um, But it's certainly a thing that I do cue in the weight room when I coach or when I'm working with a, with a training client, but there's definitely times where that's not a thing that we talk about at all. And I think, I think that's where that appropriate middle ground is. It's understanding the role of respiration and breathing in human physiology, in certain positions, in things like an anterior pelvic tilt, uh, but not letting everything become that. Yes. That's awesome. Time and a place for, for everything. And I think that does kind of fall in line with, you know, the introduction of these biomechanical based um, schools of thought that really have um, impacted the field of strength conditioning and physical therapy in a good way. Like I definitely think they have a lot of uh, impact, but people will take it to the extremes for sure. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, uh, my understanding of like Bill Hartman's most, most current iteration of his model, like the whole, or, or even like Pat, Pat Davidson's, like the exhaled spine position being one where we get increased lumbar spine lordosis, decreased thoracic, decreased thoracic spine kyphosis. Like we get things generally extending and then things generally flexing with inhalation. Like that's really useful. Like if you mm-hmm. just knew that, I think that would be an appropriate amount of breathing knowledge. And then I think with that, people either go too far down that rabbit hole. And now everything needs to be like fully exhaled and respiratory, or people are like, nah, like you just like hold your breath and train. Like it doesn't just load on the bar. Go. Yeah, exactly. And well, I think Bill Hartman too is, is a good one, like sitting on the fence. Cause like he connects phases of respiration to movements or access to movement, right? When things are not going to be able to move into a certain space and when things can move into a certain space. And I think that has kind of been like an added layer on, on top of a, a, you know, a fitness trainer, strength conditioning's like lens. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Okay. So my last one, I really hope I don't disrespect you by stealing one of yours. Um, but it's the, the use of machines. Oh, you're fine. That wasn't going to be my one. Okay. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, I I do think that's, that's a great one though. That's a, (laughs) that's a great, like that is so obvious for people that have been doing this for like five or 10 years. Like you've seen this. Yes. Yes. 100%. And I purposely now, go to a specific gym solely to use the machines. And I don't think I would have ever done that like 10 years ago. Before it was all free weights, you know, so, functional yeah. movement. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so like, like, like set this up. What's position one, what's position okay. two and what's the resolution? Uh, so I think the problem was people didn't think things were functional quote unquote enough, or didn't reflect some sort of like performance specificity. Um, and so free weights, barbells, which kind of lock you in place, by the way, um, or body weight activity was kind of more in play and kind of people didn't think machines were very useful or functional. 
I think that term is probably key here. Um, so, but now I think there's a push back into it because we realize how valuable like isolating uh, a muscle can be and how much, I think it's actually imposing a little bit more order to the system. I'm like putting people in positions that's kind of like, uh, safe to fail in, in some ways and highly, highly isolating. Yeah. I, I like that. I mean, I would, I would even argue like you could take a further step back, right. And say back in the fifties and sixties, people didn't know how to train and then Ooh, yeah. bodybuilding yeah. became the dominant gym thing to do. So if you look in like the eighties and nineties, people were like gyms were really pushing this bodybuilding isolation machine-based type of training. Like I just watched a, an episode of Seinfeld recently from like 1996. And like most of it occurred at the gym with Elaine and George. And it was like, it was hilarious just to see like, not only what they were wearing, cause it was all like leotards and leg warmers, <laughs> but it was like everything in that gym was a machine. Like mm -hmm. there were no, like no, nobody was doing dumbbell things. Like that was the, the fitness zeitgeist was you go to the, uh, you, like you go to the gym and you do, and you do machines. I think they were called health clubs in the mid nineties. My dad still refers to them as health clubs. So in some ways you think it like kind of coincided with a, a knowledge gap in terms of the fitness realm leaking into like the public uh, knowledge base? No, I just think like people, people didn't resistance train and then mm -hmm. bodybuilding became popular with machines. So then everybody that wanted to resistance train was like, oh, we have to do this with machines. Like that was how gotcha. the, that was how the general population coalesced that body of knowledge into something that made sense. And then in the late nineties, early aughts, it was like, Hey, uh, all these things that we're doing sitting on a machine don't look like anything that we do when we're on the track or on the field. So let's swing this way in the other direction and do no machine work all dumbbells, all barbells, mm -hmm. all kettlebells. And so I would, I would argue that the functional training is sort of that antithesis position where it was like a, it was an overreaction to the dominant fitness training style of the eighties and nineties. Yeah. That makes sense. And now you see it swinging back a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what, that's what you're saying too, where it's like, yeah. I, I fucking love like, like a leg press is, is an amazing exercise. And I think there's so much wisdom to what you said about a barbell locking you in place. Like there, yeah. there's probably more of a reduction in degrees of freedom with a barbell back squat or even a safety bar back squat than there is with a leg press. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Definitely. And any other thoughts on like in your own, in your own practice, like what the resolution between those two extremes looks like or ought to look like? I think um, when I really want to maybe isolate a muscle group or focus solely on a, a loading um, activity for you know a stimulus, I probably would push people more to uh, machine-based activities. It's safe to fail, especially with people with low training ages. Um, and then someone who really... I mean, season one with Eric Smith um, is someone who, you know, I started to really dive into machines after that, that conversation because he really hit home with it. And especially um, that the Memphis Grizzlies and his rationale for incorporating machines in their, in their workouts as well.
Yeah, I, I, I love that. I think that's an important one. And I think really it, it's been fairly recently where we, we see people like that going towards the middle. Like I remember Doug, Doug Kachijan having, um, oh, we had him on Jared Boyd yeah. on, uh, yeah, on his podcast, like a couple of years ago, talking about like how they were switching to machines and that was like novel and they were both, they were both stoked on it. All right. You ready <laughs> right. for my last one? Last one, Tim. Very exciting. The, this is, this is the one that started this entire topic. Um, and I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to say it without too many like SAT and GRE words, but here goes <laughs> biomechanical perfectionism as an, as an extreme position to, uh, everything is self-organized. All movements are good. There's no bad positions as the other extreme position to a more blended approach of we should have a biomechanical model, but we should also account for individual differences in movement. And we should also be okay with a little bit of variation from that biomechanical model. And I think that this is, I, I mean, even for me personally, as an athlete, this was such an important concept to grasp because I think when you go to physical therapy school, uh, it's sort of, I don't even know if this was explicitly stated, but it's just assumed that like certain positions of the body are good and certain positions are bad. Like knees in are bad. A rounded back is bad. And so we want to get a person into another position and then they'll feel good. And maybe that could also be a, an, an educational strategy. Like it's easier to teach people something than to teach people that chaos is okay. Like, because then like, what, what is the education system doing in that? But I think, and I think the order of these things matter. I think if you're educating someone, you start with a biomechanical framework and then you overlay this knowledge of, but human beings are really, really robust. We adapt to a lot of things. We can, we can make a lot of different positions and movement strategies work. So now you got to figure out, all right, how do you square those two in your mind? How do you square the fact that probably knees over your feet in a squat is going to be good as opposed to knees in. But if we see a little bit of a valgus twitch at the bottom, that that's okay. And we're not going to cue that. And we're not going to drill that to death. Yes, exactly. And not everything's going to look the same. I know I remember Eric Huddleston last season talked about like butterfly reps and allowing that variability to occur within a set of movement. Uh, it's funny that you brought up David Gray's podcast because I was listening to him and Joel on his podcast yesterday and they had actually talked about kind of an athlete who was very very highly structured um, almost too structured and so Joel I feel like he kind of turned that and he added some play activities such as like dunking I think it was like a tennis ball or something like that I think it was and a just, soccer player that they were like a like yeah, a yeah, yeah. 16 year old and you'd always just been coached to the T like yeah. every drill sets reps so it's almost like in a, and I've seen that a lot in in Joel I know you follow him a lot more than I but in uh, when I think of Joel I think of kind of like the bosu ball maybe pendulum swing where it relates to you of like <sighs> You know, like Bosu ball adding like kind of like an imbalance or something like a unstable ground. And that I feel like kind of went away for a little bit in terms of, you know, people think everyone who puts someone on a Bosu ball is stupid or blah, blah, blah. But now like Joel was actually very intelligently talking about some of his activities, including an unstable surface and, and why. And they actually talked about order and chaos, not to summarize that podcast or anything, but when the, the, you're asking the body to do a chaotic task, it's going to impose order, which I thought was 
um, a great discussion. So I highly recommend listening to that podcast. But when I hear you talk, I, I really think about their conversation that they had. Yeah. I mean, I th- and this is something that I remember in that episode, because I, I think I, I listened like two or three weeks ago as well, where David was talking about uh, proximal versus distal rigidity and stiffness, yeah. where like if the foot does not have something stable where it can be stiff and responsive, then you're just going to stiffen up more proximal, like at the hip, at the spine, at the rib cage in order to create a system that's stable. But if you can teach the foot to be the generator of that stability, then you open up degrees of freedom kind of where most people feel tight all the time. And I know he talks about this in terms of co-contractions. So we, we don't want the co-contractions around the spine. Like we don't want a spine minimizing degrees of freedom in sprinting. We'd like a foot minimizing degrees of freedom. Yeah, exactly. But it just goes to your point of how people are kind of incorporating a little bit more self-organization and uh, opportunities to explore mo- movement a little bit and moving away from this very structured approach. Yeah. And I, th- and I, I think even recently, uh, but only in my own training, because when people, when people pay me to design training for them, like I feel like they're paying for a structure. So I, yeah. I, I have yet to have the fortitude to give them like 20 minutes of unstructured, like batting a ball against a wall. Cause I've had, I feel like I'd be out of client. Um, but it's such a good point, but in my own training, like now, like I try to cap every training session and this is something that, God, this is David Gray's getting a lot of play this podcast, but in our episode, um, which will be one of the earliest ones in season two, like he talked about just having an athlete, like dribble a basketball for five or 10 minutes at the end of the session or dribble a soccer ball just to get out of that, like very cognitive, like rigid movement kind of thing. And that's something I've been messing around with. And I absolutely love it. Yeah, that, that's such a great point. Um, and it's also like, like sometimes the constraints of remote coaching where it's like, I would love to be able to explore a little bit more. I know you and I, we called like those sessions, like exploratory sessions. And it's nice to have a client where you can kind of bounce ideas off and they're very body aware and kind of exploring things versus like remote coaching. I find it has to be a little bit more structured in terms of, you know, my comment section often is like, you should feel this, like feel this area on your foot. It's almost like you're not giving them any sort of opportunity to, you know, kind of get feedback from them. Yeah. I mean, I even think about like the extremes in terms of clients I currently manage, and I don't think either one of them would would mind me discussing this, but like I have a, I have an awesome client, um, Rachel, who's a trail runner and she's incredibly body aware and incredibly curious. So it's like, I, I just finished designing a program for, her. I'm having her do some bounds over PVC pipes where she's messing around with different arm swing strategies mm-hmm. to explore like, what is a, like, what is a forward arm swing do? What does a backwards arm swing do? What is, what is right forward, left back do just to try to like explore that and feel that and maybe integrate that into running. And I have another client, Alex, who it's like, we're solving a completely different fitness problem. Like he, he doesn't have a like specific performance goals. He just wants to kind of like look good, feel good, be able to be able to run consistently, consistently. So it's like his stuff by design is more simple. It's more structured because he just wants to get those workouts in. So I think to be, in order to be a good coach, to be a good trainer, you have to realize the the type of person that you're dealing with and the the problem that they're hiring you to solve. And is it one of no order, no motivation, or is it one of, I don't have the resources at my disposal to explore movement. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm, I'm kind of like stuck in this rut. 
Yeah. And I think a lot of the people, when I started working with general population clients, there was a very big fear towards movement. So the system was trying to impose order and they often like weren't able to do, you know, what I thought was like basic things and kind of pushing that realm of play of exploratory activities and kind of just things that involve a little bit more like dynamic work or just fun kind of has, has shifted, shifted them a little bit. Yeah. I love that. I'm glad we ended on that. Cause I feel like that's something that's hopefully like rather near and dear to your heart too. Very. Or br- brain, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Any other closing thoughts before we wrap this uh, thing up? I would be interesting to hear some of the listeners examples of that. If they have any examples, um, please let Tim and I know. Um, I, I think I would definitely want to hear some of the listeners' opinions about that. Yeah. Or if we got anything wrong, like, because I do think that not everything, uh, not everything features the optimal solution as the middle point between two positions. So listeners, like if you think that the right viewpoint, like, let's say you think machines only is the best way Mm -hmm. to go. We would love to hear from you uh, as to why that might be the case. And feel free to reach out via, I would say Instagram would be the best way to do that when we post this thing. Or if you just are liking this podcast in general, we would very much appreciate it if you would leave a five-star review on Apple podcast. Um, That would be muchly appreciated by me and Michelle. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, good to, good to talk always to you as always. Always a good time. All right, talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us, and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high-caliber guests and continuing to produce a high-quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool, and that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.